This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Things We Used to Say. The Dreyfus Affair. Westerns 101. And Revolting Medieval Peasants. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tim Brandis, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin, You have your things, I always say, but people do change and learn. So is there a tenet or core design belief of yours that you have altered significantly over the course of your career or even something that you now outright reject? What changed that caused this shift in your position? Robin? Have you rejected a previous tenet? Have you had the scales of game design fall from your eyes, possibly on the road to Milwaukee? Uh, to the extent that I've learned anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I've hey, learned over a the simulation years. simulation not in evidence. You, yeah. you make a sound point. Tim Brandis is uh, advancing ahead of his uh, his data. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that in a, in a note of flattery, if nothing else. Um, I think what I have learned over the years is less about core principles of design, which I think I have been fairly consistent with from the beginning, but rather my understanding of uh, where the audience is 
what they can take on board and what they need more help with. And that's something that you learn in various ways, all of them somewhat uh, deceptive or limited or narrow. But over time, you do get a sense of what is sort of the baseline set of expectations that gamers have. And that has certainly changed since I started designing in the early 90s. And it is my reaction to players and and GM's reactions that have changed the way that I design things. For example, in the original version of HeroQuest, which was called Hero Wars, I operated under the assumption that people all kind of basically understand how narrative works and they can figure out what is an interesting or an uninteresting dramatic choice, what is what makes for fun storytelling. And my assumption at the time was that uh, we just absorb so many stories constantly, all the time, more so than in any uh, society ever, that people just kind of know that by instinct and all they need are kind of the tools that enable them to do that. That turned out to be very wrong. Uh, that uh, the ability to analyze narrative and see how it works and implement that is something that I have, but not everybody else, else does. And that a lot of people, especially if you were brought up in the simulative set of assumptions uh, that prevailed in role-playing earlier on, uh, actually need a lot of guidance on that. And so the current version of HeroQuest, um, it's written to give you a lot of that and to really go into depth as to how all of these rules enable things that work the way they do in popular storytelling and um, show you each step of the way how to make those decisions. And of course, that's also what Hamlet's Hit Points is all about, is about trying to uh, help people see what the building blocks of storytelling are with an eye toward helping you internalize that and then use that in your gaming. So that's not an example of a... It's not like I always said that people had an instinctive feel for how narrative worked. I discovered they didn't, and so I changed... Uh, later projects accordingly. How about you? Have, have you got a, a, a big tenet that you have uh, come to reject? My biggest turnaround came after, or rather during, my reviewing uh, of role-playing games for Out of the Box. And I started that column in 97 or 98, and I read a ton of role-playing games for two, three, four years, and they were all one or another variant of the systems that were in uh, existence in the 1990s, uh, you had your dice pool, you had your build points, you had your randomizer, you had your uh, bell curves, you had your linear uh, dice progressions. There was only so many ingredients, and they were all just being mixed up. It was like reading an endless number of uh, chocolate chip cookie recipes that began by with a 100-page explanation of what flour was. And so my theory was that perhaps we were done screwing around with system and what we needed was a agreement by the the uh, the main systems in existence that they would maybe license their systems to other people so that you could take the clever and interesting part of the game which was the setting marry it to whichever system worked better for your game and you would move on and so you wouldn't have to keep reinventing a point build or reinventing a, a dice pool mechanic you could just use uh, White Wolf or Shadowrun or GURPS or uh, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, and you'd be able to basically build anything you wanted. And this was my firm conviction right up until, of course, 2002, 2003, when the uh, indie uh, game movement 
sort of blew up and said, hey, look at that. There's more desserts than just chocolate chip cookies. We've made lemon bars and fig bars. Oh, and I made uh, a savory dessert. And hold on, this guy's grilling short ribs. I didn't know you could even do that. And so my conviction that we were done with system uh, lasted basically until we weren't done with system anymore. A bunch of new designers who were not trying to create the exact same tabletop experience that uh, Dave and Gary had been began to sort of build out from the pre-existing system vocabulary and demonstrated to my satisfaction that in fact we were not done with system and there was a lot more things you could do with system and play around with system and I think it's to that realization that I began to look at the uh the the indie game design movement specifically as not so much a philosophy or God knows a critical school, but a way of generating more, more technologies, uh, that it was uh, a think tank or, a or the Royal society or the old, um, Arkwright loom factory where, uh, all of a sudden we have new ways of doing things and new ways of doing things we might not have even wanted to do. And which of those ways could be brought to bear on the old problems that we thought were solved or that we had solved with uh GURPS or basic role-playing. Now that we have this set of understandings for straightforward physics simulation of stabbing people in the face, what can we add to that kind of game that we might want to play at the table? And I think some of that is your narrativism and some of that is, uh, you know, questioning roles of GMs, uh, collaborative scene framing, all the other stuff that came out of, the indie revolution, but I never saw it as a, as a critical theory. What I saw it as was a, a technological explosion. So it was like someone, you know, uh, in 1400 saying, well, we've pretty much got all the ways to stab people. Um, there's <laughs> only so many more pole arms we can invent. We're done. And then, you know, you see guns being used on the battlefield and say, well, that, that, uh, blew my theory into a cocked hat. What's still true about, uh, warfare, uh, in this new and magical age. And the same thing is what's still true about role-playing game design in this new and magical age. What are the f- core principles that uh, call of Cthulhu, uh, for example, embodied perfectly that I can see being embodied by these other games. And the great, uh, one of the great things about that movement is that it took place against the background of the D 20 explosion of the, you know, resurgence of D and D under third edition. These two, trends, which were uh, kind of opposite in a lot of ways, showed that role-playing games weren't moving on an evolutionary track where uh, one sort of game would be in vogue and everybody would react to that and then a new thing would come along. Because before then, you could sort of look at there's the the early rise of uh, D&D and then the next wave of games that responded to that, which were let's make it more complicated and simulative. And then along came a point build, and then you had your uh, focus on settings, uh, which is about when I entered the scene. Uh, but then suddenly, in the in the early part of the 2000s, you've got things going in a couple of radically different directions. And then ever since then, uh, things have continued to spread out in different ways and serve different communities. Uh, it would be nice if there were, I think, more cross-pollination between those communities, but sometimes stuff like that happens, you know, for example, where the story game crowd decides to like revisit uh, dungeon crawling, for example. Um, and the overall movement that I think that that sparked has been one that uh, has people who are who like complicated games have their complicated games, but in general, things are moving in a simpler direction. And as I continue to evolve my own designs, that the audience for simplicity is now growing 
uh, in a way. So I'd, I'm no longer hearing back that, oh, no, this isn't really my, my sort of game from younger gamers. There are people who still love the, you know, they're still uh, very invested in the, the game that they learned uh, when they first started playing. And they're very happy with its complexity level. And that's part of its appeal. But in general, we're now starting to bring in people uh, partly through the, uh, you know, the greater uh, nerd culture efflorescence and through the uh, people who've learned to game uh, through casual board games and stuff and see that as, as a, a thing to do. And so it's a much smaller hop now into role-playing, but those uh, players who are sometimes a little older are not necessarily as interested in a big homework assignment to generate a complicated character, for example, at the outset of a campaign. And so uh, I can now do things uh, with the simplicity of character generation that I couldn't have gotten away with. Even like over the history of Gumshoe, when Gumshoe first came out, an initial reaction was, oh, this is a little simple for my taste. But now we're looking at the original wave of Gumshoe games and looking at the character generation there and going, you know, I think we can streamline this even more. And yeah, I've, I've, I've actually had people say that uh, character generation in Gumshoe is, is too complex now. And it's like, oh, you lovely children who have never made a GURPS character. How how do I envy you? <laughs> right. But that, that that's where the taste is now. That is great because then, you know, I can design uh, for the level of simplicity that I wish we had an audience for all along. So that's not a case of my changing a tenant of what I want to do, but finding a more fruitful ground with less resistance in order to do the things that I'm uh, doing. So uh, Gumshoe, of course, went through a, a fairly long period of a lot of people being kind of uh, baffled by it and not really getting what the deal was. And then uh, when uh, you did Trail, that enabled people to sort of grok it more. And, you know, now I'm hearing from a lot of people who say, yeah, Gumshoe is just my core system, which is interesting and ironic since it was designed to be very specific and do one particular thing. But I think definitely what people are responding to there uh, is the simplicity and that as we go along, uh, we can make it simpler still. Uh, so Gumshoe one-to-one is um, incredibly uh, simple. There's really, there's one or two things that you describe at the outset and you get a pre-generated uh, character and then the next unannounced thing that I do is also going to draw in some of the stuff from Guy and Reach, which made uh, character generation radically um, simpler as well. So uh, for me, it's there's an, enough of a group of people who uh, want to do what I have wanted to do all along, which is great. Um, so how, do, how have you reacted over time to the changes in the audience or the, the at least the broadening of the audience to include a, a bunch of different taste groups? I mean, I guess so, it's sort of fortunate for me that uh, because I've always been a design generalist, right? I, I've never had a sort of a one true wayism about this is the right way to build, you know, a game character. This is the right way to model stabbing an orc. I've, you know, when I see new groups of players come in with new tastes, I'm always excited because that broadens the audience. And my designs, to the extent that I am thinking of them as organic unities, as opposed to sort of tools I use to get the job done, sort of respond to the knowledge that people are going to have more access to more kinds of gaming. So Knights Black Agents could very easily combine some really trad approaches with some pretty story gaming approaches. And I felt really confident that people who wanted to play Knights Black Agents would be able to put their heads around it, and I wouldn't lose too many people off the side of the bus. 
Um, and that's really sort of that, you know, there's no one true way. I, I'd always known it really, um, except Call of Cthulhu, of course, is the one true way for Call of Cthulhu. But when I designed two Star Trek games back to back for Last Unicorn and Decipher, and we had to sort of take entirely different design approaches, uh, mostly just not to step on our own shadow. It transpired that, yeah, there's two, at least two really good ways to design a Star Trek game, assuming that the designers really know Star Trek and are really concerned with utilizing that technology to get to the Star Trekiest point of, at the table that you can. And, you know, you designed another great Star Trek game with Ash and Star. So that's three great Star Trek games that I've been at least tangentially involved in. Um, so I think that one of the things that I'd always known, but is becoming ever more clear is that there is no one best way to get a specific effect. There are things that are um, uh, uh, targeted to specific sort of moments of the table or whatever, or have certain effects that you need to be aware of. And there are some mechanics that simply do things that we couldn't do or didn't bother doing, uh, like the, the push pyramid or like, you know, a, a template character uh, design, like from feng shui. Uh, there's lots of other systems by which you can uh, shorthand a lot of things that we weren't shorthanding, but there's more than one road to any goal you're trying to get to in tabletop. And the fact that there's only one great Arthurian game and only one great Western game and uh, uh, only one best Lovecraft game doesn't mean there aren't other ways to get to Westerns, Arthurianism, or Lovecraft. It just means that you have to um, uh, work a little harder uh, to to measure up to best of breed, but you've got an, an arsenal of, of material to try and do it with. Right, and you, you never know where things are eventually going to end up. You know, that that To assume that we've reached the end of design history is folly. Uh, right now, we're moving toward... Uh, greater simplicity. The new version of D&D is a simpler game than its two predecessors and is now uh, really picking up steam and doing gangbusters. I would say it's even simpler than second was. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, surprising uh, now when you see a new edition of a game done that, it, that complicates it further. Um, that seems uh, kind of out of uh, touch with what people are looking for, but who knows, you know? In, well, I mean, in again, another... we say that, but Pathfinder is 45% of the audience, and that's not, you know, that's not string cheese. Uh, right, that's exactly. people who really want that complex, very gamist, very reliable mesh of of uh, of world and, and fantasy physics uh, built around them, and that's great. And, you know, those guys are, they didn't go anywhere, and Pathfinder, it's not like Pathfinder's hurting for sales, so... I mean, that's the thing that I, I really take away is that when we say the field is moving to X, we're, first of all, we're assuming that the field exists, but second of all, we're assuming a destination. And that's where you were talking about how uh, it was good to see the story game movement and uh, D20 happening simultaneously is that it sort of put paid, hopefully, to notions of a teleology in game design. Teleology in art is stupid anyway, but in game design, it's super stupid. Right. And we may well see the people who cut their teeth on Pathfinder come along and in five years, they will come up with a new uh, elegant crunchiness that is, uh, you know, more work, but rewards that work more than current designs do. So to think that there is any one final destination for anything, I think we both agree is uh, a, that's a thing that we always say that we can always continue to say because and we're never always have right. to retract. Which sounds and like a summation to me. It does. It does sound like uh, at the point where you and I are always saying the same thing we've always said, that we have answered the question of, do you always say that pretty effectively and can move into the next hut? 
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. We enter the confines of the Tradecraft Hut, but it's a low-tech version of the Tradecraft Hut. There's a velvet-cut curtain on the wall, and there's a waste paper basket with a piece of... The, the biggest spy tech we've got on hand is a piece of paper that's been uh, carelessly uh, left there, ripped into six pieces. And that suggests that we are going into a historical edition of the Tradecraft Hut, in which we're going to look at what I think, Ken, you'll probably agree, is the... Spy scandal with the biggest political resonance ever. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. It's gigantic. It uh, completely altered at the destiny of at least four countries, which most spy scandals uh, have, you know, at best, they, they briefly alter the destiny of one country for a bit. Right. But this or one, one, one cabinet minister. Right. But, th but this one really blew the doors off, uh, you know, uh, France, Italy, Germany, and Israel none of them would be in the in the same place that they are now without the Dreyfus affair. So, yes, that was, that's what we're talking about, the Dreyfus affair. Uh, when you look at accounts of it and passing, you often, it's the Dreyfus affair, which is too complicated to easily encapsulate, probably the next <laughs> statement. Uh, and indeed, it's very complicated because it uh, stretches on from like 1894 as the original inciting incident, and it doesn't really get fully resolved until like 1906. And as we suggested, it's got a huge... Uh, ripple effect. So uh, I guess the place to start here is with uh, the uh, geopolitical and then the political consequences. So, uh, Ken, what are the, the geopolitics that uh, caused the Dreyfus affair to spark or against which the affair plays? I mean, the, the, affair, the affair plays in the context of uh, the French 
and German rivalry on the continent of Europe. The, the French are, have just been beaten soundly by the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War. They've come back. And by just, it was been like a generation yeah, ago. Yeah, generation like ago. But, but they're still feeling the, um, uh, the, the pressure to come back and, and sort of reestablish themselves as a legitimate great power in Europe. And yes, a lot and of the it- Franco-Prussian War was a giant, uh, screw up on the part of the, the French. It was an incredible humiliation, deserving its own uh, later segment, probably. Absolutely. And so the, uh, and so the French were in the sort of rising, never again revenge, you know, the glory of Napoleon, real Napoleon, not stupid Napoleon demands it. Just a, 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 ferv- a fervor of nationalism and militarism that is playing out in, in, you know, overseas colonies, colonial expansion. This is the era in which they're conquering the rest, you know, the sort of the, the empty bit in the middle of West Africa. They're conquering Indochina right around now. Uh, they're doing everything they possibly can to feel their oats. Uh, the British, uh, Navy is, uh, modernizing. And so the French have to modernize their Navy, which is another, uh, big expense. They've got, you know, a giant industrial, uh, proletariat that is, uh, uh, that is, that had better be distracted by nationalist, uh, goals or else they will, um, uh, have all manner of worker uprisings again, like they did in 1871. And they didn't want any part of that. So the goal of the nationalist militarist, what, what I guess what you could call the reactionary Republican faction of France uh, is to build up France so that it can take on Germany in a straight fight and beat the hell out of them. And everything has to be subordinated to that goal. And that is their, their great desire uh, nationally. And I think, you know, pretty much top to bottom, everyone in France wants that because no one enjoyed the Franco-Prussian war. <laughs> Even the Prussians got a little sick of it eventually. Um, yeah. I think they, they <laughs> felt sad for their victims after a while. Um, yeah. And so d- domestically, uh, this has been an incredibly tumultuous uh, century that has gone from the uh, French Revolution to the uh, Bonaparte era. And then uh, there's the monarchy comes back. And then there's briefly a Republican uh, democratic government that gets usurped by Napoleon III. And you get the glory of the Second Empire and then the destruction of uh, that with the Franco-Prussian War immediately on that on its heels, or rather, sort of, you know, one is a result of the other. There's then uh, the Paris uh, Commune again, deserving its a full entire segment, but that was a, uh, a leftist uprising in, uh, that was put down, and uh, four times as many people died in that as died in the French Revolution that non-Francophones uh, know about. Uh, and so then we're in the aftermath of that. So we've got. Uh, a bitterly divided uh, left and right, which uh, and what is left and what is right kind of changes configurations. But as we've suggested, the uh, military and the idea of military adventurism or expansion is uh, uh, riding high. And then along comes the Bordereau. Uh, Ken, what is the Bordereau? Uh, the Bordereau is what they called um, a basically it's a it's a memo. It was a letter to uh, the German embassy, uh, to the German military attache of the embassy, and it said, Dear Max, uh, basically, I'm going to send uh, all those great confidential French military documents that you wanted, love, Bordereau guy. And uh, no one knew who wrote it uh, because, you know, you don't sign that kind of incriminating thing. You do have to rip it up and leave it out in a waste basket. Well, if you're the if you're the, the um, uh, German military attache, you rip it up and toss it in your waste basket. But you don't count on the fact that your cleaning woman is a patriotic French woman who sees spy documents 
and takes her chance and brings him to uh, the French uh, uh, counter espionage top dog, um, whose name is Georges Picard. Georges Picard. And uh, Picard sort of begins a manhunt, if you will, for the uh, author of the Bordereau, the guy who would have written it, who therefore is suspected and uh, rightly, one assumes, of sending these documents on to the Germans. And again, betraying France to the Germans would be like, you know, it is the similar level of national hatred as if you were betraying America to the Soviets, right? Or betraying uh, Germany to Hitler or uh, Britain to Hitler, right? It's that, that level of just incredible national fervor, again, certainly within uh, the ministries and within the army. I'm, I'm not sure that necessarily every dock worker in Tulum gave a, gave a fig one way or the other, but pretty much everyone in any position of power and that's all across left and right knows that whatever else is, is going on, you shouldn't be sending military secrets to the Germans. And that's sort of a, a unifying factor, a, anger at Germany, that the French uh, establishment is using to build up their own uh, power. And unfortunately, Picard's investigation is dilatory. It consists of going, <laughs> yes. which which of these officers who might have done this is not like the others? Yes. And so his eyes settled upon Alfred Dreyfus. And the reason he was not like the others and didn't fit in is that he was Jewish. Uh, however, he was not the author of the Bordereau, but was... Uh, yes, he was not just Jewish, he was also Alsatian, yes. which means he was from the border province that the Germans had taken over in 1871. Yes, and you could argue that that's, uh, that might be the more pressing detail, but of course this is also a time when there's a rise of the anti-Semitic press. You, you, could certain, you could certainly argue it if there had been a second Jewish officer anywhere in the French general staff. Yes. Um, and, and there's an enormous political, uh, you know, appetite uh, for this to be uh, the scapegoat. So what happens when he is uh, arrested and put on trial? He's arrested. They are trying to get him to to write out a confession, basically, that would be then compared to the Bordereau and say, look, it's the same thing that uh, that you wrote to the Germans. You're guilty. And he didn't do it. They tried to um, uh, get him to commit suicide to save his honor, and he says, no, I'll have a trial uh, to save my honor. Thank you very much. So they take him to uh, the court-martial. They order his family into silence, put a gag order on them. He's put on solitary. He doesn't have a lawyer. And then they uh, put him up in front of the court-martial and at the same time begin trying the case in the press by leaking stories about Jewish a Jewish spy who has been uh, in, in cahoots with the Germans. And that way they can build up this sort of uh, uh, climate in which the fact that they're railroading this guy doesn't matter one way or the other uh, to the population because they're just happy that they've nailed this, this horrible, horrible uh, spy. And they do the big trial. And uh, Alphonse Bertillon, the father of fingerprints, who is not actually the father of graphology, testifies that Dreyfus's handwriting is the handwriting of the Bordereau. Uh, Bordereau is um, uh, convicted with by secret documents that uh, he doesn't get to see, and uh, they send him to Devil's Island uh, in 1894 after a few hours of deliberation. Now, remember, this is a court-martial. This is not a civilian court. So even the um, two-hour Anglo-Saxon mines, uh, inadequate precautions of the French justice system, they're not even there. It's a completely... Uh, open and shut military case, and only Dreyfus's resistance makes it take even as long as it does, because he's not going to cooperate with his interrogators one little bit, because he knows he's innocent, obviously. So, at what point does the uh, French military apparatus discover 
that the Bordereau was in fact written by a guy named Ferdinand Esterhazy. And uh, what do they do about it? Our buddy Picard, who actually was not um, the head of counterintelligence who screwed over uh, Dreyfus, that was a guy named Sondhair, um, he gets put in charge and he uh, discovers uh, basically... Um, I don't want to say by accident, but he starts looking around at other documents that were uh, black bagged from the German embassy and just to see if, you know, anything else there might uh, cast more light on who was working with Dreyfus. And it turns out he's got a telegram that is written to another French officer named Major Esterhazy. And uh, there are a bunch of letters in which uh, good old Max uh, von Schwarzkopen is writing to Esterhazy saying things like, hey, uh, how are the wife and kids? Any more military secrets? Uh, what, what else would you like? Picard goes and he looks at letters from uh, Esterhazy and discovers that, oops, yeah, while we're matching handwriting, maybe we should have looked at the handwriting of anyone else in the general staff because Esterhazy's handwriting is a perfect match for the Bordereau. And so Esterhazy is pretty much open and shut guilty. So Picard takes it to the general staff. The general staff says, oh, we've already had a trial about that. Don't uh, worry your little pretty head, Picard. And they um, uh, send him back uh, to, you know, attend to his knitting, basically. Yeah, they, they cover it up and they uh, stash him somewhere to, to get him out of the uh, pu- uh, public eye, such as it is. Um, so how does the uh, tide begin to turn that uh, causes this from kind of a open and shut court martial into a a gigantic uh, public controversy that goes on for years and years and enmeshes many of the uh, sort of key cultural figures of uh, Paris at the time. What happens basically is that Picard uh, gets reassigned to Tunisia um, because he is obviously far too good at being a counterintelligence guy to stay around in Paris. (laughs) So they send him off to Tunisia and he takes that badly. Um, Tunisia is a nice place, but it's not as nice as Paris. And he uh, goes to his lawyer and he says, just in case I, you know, trip over a sand dune and don't come back from Tunisia, here's a hilarious fact about the Dreyfus affair. And the lawyer decides it's too important to wait for Picard to get, you know, judicially murdered over. So he goes and he talks to the vice president of the Senate and tells the um, uh, vice president of the Senate, hey, it's this, it's not Dreyfus, he's innocent. It's this other guy. And the vice president of the Senate says, well, I'll just say that and we'll see what happens. And it turns out that, you know, that sets off a giant whoop-de-doo. Everyone who's got some, uh, uh, you know, wants a rock to throw at the government picks that up as the rock that they're going to throw. And many of them are also, one assumes, animated by the genuine sense of injustice that this perfectly fine military officer got railroaded and sent to Devil's Island for no reason. And it's still in Devil's Island. And it's still in Devil's Island. And so Emil Zola is probably the famousest of the great defenders of of Dreyfus. And they begin a lengthy campaign in newspapers to get uh, Dreyfus a new trial and to to figure out what's actually happening uh, about this guy, Esterhazy, because his name has been leaked. Everyone can look at uh, his uh, handwriting, they can look at the handwriting of the Bordereau and they can pretty much say, that's the same handwriting. Yeah, people make handbills out of the <laughs> Bordereau and start posting it around town so that people can do their own handwriting uh, comparison on the street. Yeah. And, and so the, uh, the the military is like, well, this is a problem. They do a, a trial for Esterhazy and he's acquitted. Yay! <laughs> And he's acquitted based on, um, at the very least, there's that other guy in Devil's Island, the the the, the, the bullheaded uh, opinions of the of the generals, but also just to sort of um, egg the pudding, they make sure to start 
forging some information about Dreyfus so that they'll have, you know, a silver bullet if this does come back again. And so they start setting up forged documents to try and, um, uh, and, and really nail Dreyfus when he comes back in a sort of, you know, we know he did it. We just have to forge the evidence that proves he did it type, uh, development. And it, and it's hard to say because you, you almost can't believe that the French general staff could be this stupid, of course, until you've looked at World War One and World War Two, but and the Franco-Prussian War. and the Franco-Prussian War. Um, but you can't believe that they would actually think any of this would work, right? That the, they have to have been animated by just the most insanely crude anti-Semitism, as opposed to any rational calculation of national interest, right? And just digging their heels in cover their posterior, right? Because it, yeah. at a certain point, they even start saying. Well, it doesn't matter if he's innocent. What's important here is the honor of the French military. Right. And uh, that seems like a pretty big concession if you're still keeping the guy in Devil's Island. Yeah. And they go after uh, Zola. They lodge a, a defamation suit against him, which they're able to very carefully narrow the terms of to, you know, cherry pick a few little statements out of uh, Zola's vast writings on the subject. And they uh, secure a one-year prison term and massive fine for him. He doesn't wind up serving the term, but it's a big uh, blow to someone who's, you know, he's, he's older at this point and uh, that kind of breaks him. Uh, so they're really determined. It becomes, you know, a matter not of whether uh, Dreyfus is guilty or innocent, but of their need to protect the system from uh, and themselves from uh, the blowback of what uh, they have done. So uh, given their their vast power, how does it finally break against them? And how, how is he finally uh, exonerated? Well, they, they do, they, they do eventually find Esterhazy unfit for duty and suggest that maybe he would like to go to England and not be part of this ridiculousness anymore. And he sort of turns on them, right? He starts writing, uh, kind of tell all stuff. Yeah. He, well, I mean, he's, he, he's a horrible person. So obviously he's going to, you know, make as, as much, uh, hay as he possibly can over the whole thing. And then, uh, they, they try and put Picard on trial. Like they say, it's the cover up that gets you. We're going to um, need a bigger scapegoat. <laughs> right. And so they, they keep, um, uh, they, they keep going through, um, trial after trial and every trial brings out more evidence or brings out more forgeries, which can then be proved as forgeries and once more become a bigger thing. And again, because it's a political club with which to beat the establishment and legitimately so. <laughs> yeah. Well deserving. Yeah, I don't mean to. I don't mean to, to to minimize the fact that it's a political argument. I mean, Watergate was a political club to beat the establishment with, and hey, look at that. <laughs> Nixon was a criminal. Um, but the uh, the the people who are who are you know would maybe would have let it go if they were just publishers. These are senators who have you know votes in hand. They have you know the ability to bring down a government, so they're never going to let it go. So it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they wind up tearing France into opposing rioting political groups and it really polarizes french politics at a time when uh the interests of france are for everyone to basically be united and harmonious and um uh, concentrated on thumping the, the the filthy germans so it's the biggest non-battlefield screw up by the french military of the period <laughs> yes sir it's right up there um well i mean the, the the entire naval strategy of the of the of the late monarchy is also in in the list but the um uh, the president basically, uh, the president of France, Emile Loubet, uh, basically signs a decree that pardons Dreyfus. 
uh, just to avoid having to have a third trial that would be even more embarrassing than the second and first trials. And so the goal is basically, well, he's off Devil's Island. Now everyone can shut up about it. And then, uh, Emil Zola dies, uh, in 1902 by, um, by inhaling carbon monoxide from his chimney, probably by accident. Um, although with the French, who the hell can say? Uh, and so there's a, a great whoop de do about that where, you know, Anatole France says that Zola is a martyr to the Dreyfusard cause. And as a result of all of this, uh, the broadly left Dreyfusard party wins uh, the elections in 1902. And he orders the military basically to start rehabilitating Dreyfus, publishing the evidence and establishing sort of a clean record so that everyone can seriously, guys, it's 1902. We really need to concentrate on, on the Germans. We can't be wasting another decade on this nonsense. And so that's basically what happens is that the, uh, the, the government, uh, finally makes a clean breast of everything. And the result though is that, of course, the military feels like the government has, has screwed them over by, uh, pulling the rug out from under them after they've made, taken this very loud public stand against Dreyfus. We went to all the trouble to, uh, to cover up our crimes and you insist on uncovering them. <laughs> What's, what is, what is wrong with you people? Don't you know what honor means? <laughs> and so, um, uh, 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 Dreyfus gets, uh, reinstated in, uh, to the army, uh, in 1906 and then, um, is put in charge of a, of an artillery depot somewhere far out of the way of everything. And he, um, retires the next year because he, uh, incurred, uh, he got a lot of malaria while he was in Devil's Island. And so he doesn't have the health to, yes, um, he uh, suffered enormously. To, well, yes, it was, it, it, Devil's Island is horrible. Um, you know, if you've seen Papillon, you, you have sort of a, a TV version of how awful Devil's Island was, but it was really bad. And so he's sort of out of everyone's radar and, uh, Serves uh, meritoriously in World War One. He comes back to the to the colors. Um, Picart is rehabilitated and comes back. He serves as military uh, as minister of war uh, in the Clemenceau government, and uh, all ends happily, except of course that they basically destroyed the social unity of France, leaving right up to World War One, and then World War One basically tears the heart out of the French demographically, and these uh, Dreyfusard anti Dreyfusard allegiances stick around. Until you get the people who were like really mad at Dreyfus wind up being the Vichy side in World War II. And the guys who were really not mad at Dreyfus, uh, or really pro Dreyfus wind up being the free French, uh, by and large. And, and even down to the eighties where they're going to have a statue of Dreyfus and they're going to put it in the Ecole Militaire, the military school, and the army refuses to put it in the military school. This is in 1985, where literally everyone knows Dreyfus was horribly railroaded, and the military has still got this bug up their butt and will not allow it to happen. So France gets torn to pieces by this. Italy, which for, again, for political reasons, had been very pro-Dreyfus, um, uh, and also because I think that they were blaming the Vatican for the Dreyfus affair for a while. So that sort of got up everyone's nose. And so the, um, uh, the Franco Italian alliance gets very badly damaged by this. So Italy takes extra time to come into world war one and then winds up basically screwing itself in uh, world war one as a result of that. Germany obviously benefits from the Dreyfus affair because France has crippled its military right before world war one comes up. And, uh, 
Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, is living in Paris during the Dreyfus Affair. And he says, you know, I thought the French were civilized, but this makes me think, perhaps with all these anti-Semitic mobs running around lynching people, that we should put the Jews somewhere besides France. I don't know. How about Palestine? And he starts the Zionist movement basically as a response to all of this, you know, crazy Dreyfus uh, rioting. So, yeah, it's huge. It's gigantic. Uh, and uh, you uh, listeners have just gotten a, a clearer version of it than you will get if you see it in passing. And it says, well, you know, that's that's really complicated. So uh, uh, I think that we can now uh, rip up our notes into six pieces, uh, place them in the wastebasket and right. uh, hope no patriotic cleaning ladies uh, take too close a view of them and head to our next hut. The werewolves of Dacia? They're the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Delta Green. Rob Harper. Ryan Liebarger. Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Join them in the saloon for some high-class frontier gibberish at patreon.com slash Robin. The rattle of film through the sprockets, the crunch of the popcorn, the slurp of Coca-Cola tells us we have entered the festive... Cinema Hut. And here in the Cinema Hut, as we turn towards the screen, looking at the dust motes dancing in the light beams, we see more dust motes dancing. Because up there on the screen, it's Westerns, the greatest of all film genres, Robin. And because we talked about uh, the act, the Asian action cinema 101, we thought perhaps. I understand you were horribly shocked to discover a, a lacuna in the uh, film going uh, history of one of your new gamers. Yes. And this is, this is, I think, I don't want to name names, but um, uh, one of my new players confessed brokenly and in tears that they had never seen a Western until they watched Tombstone, which they had watched as research for my game, or one assumes they'd watched it for all the other reasons one watches Tombstone. But it was like, oh my God, I've never seen a Western before. And this was amazing. And I'm like, oh, oh, you poor child. Uh, Tombstone is many, many wonderful things, but 
this is not, this should not have been your first Western. So I, uh, I am moved to correct in every case possible, uh, the failings of society. And in this case, society has failed my innocent, uh, new player. And so we have to present a, a curriculum, if you will, for a people, 101. a 101 for people to get on board the damn Western. So I have my 101, Robin. Do you want to? So you you, uh, you made a list, which I, I carefully did, did not look at. You didn't look uh, at For okay. the delight and surprise of seeing uh, how little overlap we managed to achieve here. Okay, fantastic. So uh, if you're going to start with the Western, you're going to start with John Ford. Right. And you're going to uh, have two films that uh, they're not really bookends to his career because he actually started really early in the silent era. Uh, but uh, there's two epical uh, westerns, one featuring John Wayne as a young man, one featuring him as an older man, uh, one classical, the other revisionist. So start with Stagecoach from 1939, uh, which is a, an extended chase western uh, set in uh, the titular uh, Stagecoach, mostly. There's some scenes in a town. And that, I think, sort of establishes for you uh, what the uh, classic uh, western is. Uh, and then there's uh, The Searchers, which even if you don't see any other Westerns, you must see in order to understand 70s cinema, because in a way, almost every key American 70s film is a remake of The Searchers in one way or another, or uh, uh, nods to it, including Star Wars. And that is one in which uh, Ford starts to uh, reconsider the portrayal of uh, Native Americans as seen in uh, uh, earlier films like Stagecoach, where they're just kind of the scary villains. And uh, it is sort of a dark uh, journey uh, starring uh, uh, John Wayne again, as he uh, discovers that his uh, niece has been uh, uh, kidnapped by, I think, the Comanche? By the Comanche. By the Comanche, and uh, he goes or off... the Comanche. The Comanche, with uh, sidekick in tow to uh, uh, rescue... Oh, no, kill. <laughs> to, to kill... <laughs> His uh, rescue uh, kill. His it's all the niece. same in the West. Yeah. Um, I would argue that the searchers is not revisionist, uh, that in fact it is visionist. It is, uh, the fundamental agon of the Western and has been since the silent days that, uh, every man who picks up the gun becomes a barbarian unfit for civilization. But the only way to stop barbarism is by picking up the gun. And it is this great conflict that is at the uh, heart of Westerns as far back as hell's hinges which I think was made in 1917. And it is again, part of the searchers. As you see that John Ford's character, because he is capable of hunting down the Comanche is also incapable of civilized existence. And it is that same decision that he makes in stagecoach. I think Ford is actually doing so many things uh, with that movie. He's doing a character play. He's doing uh, a chase movie. He's doing sort of uh, a sketched uh, Western um, uh, in this case, uh, 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 Wayne is the, uh, protecting barbarian, sort of a, uh, uh, a, um, almost a marshal in, in that reading. Um, and so I would not begin with Stagecoast. I would certainly watch Stagecoast because it's one of the great films ever, but I would not begin with it because it can throw you off because so much is going on in Stagecoach. But The Searchers absolutely, uh, in addition to being the second greatest film ever made is one of the four gospels of the Western, along with another John Ford film, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, which is the film that sort of very clearly lays out the agon of the Western. And uh, also John Ford, also John Ford. Like I said, it's John Wayne and uh, Jimmy Stewart and uh, Lee Marvin as 
as the titular Liberty Valance who desperately deserves his shooting. Yeah, he needs killing. He does. He and, requires uh, and it. That's, and that's the uh, the one where there's the, the famous line, you know, if you have a choice between the truth and the legend, print the legend. Print the legend. And so it, too, is starting to question the uh, mythology versus the reality of, of the Old West. So, is, and is there, are there more Fords? Because you, you could basically... You know, you could just have a graduate course in just Ford. Yeah, you could just watch nothing yeah. but John Ford for the rest of your life, and you'd be a happy person. But I, I try to with the 101 do as broad a potential uh, canvas as possible, so that people can follow little trails in any okay. number of ways. So the if other, you wouldn't start with Stagecoach, what would you start with? I would start with High Noon, which is uh, again crystal clear about what it's about. It's a great movie. Uh, Fred Zinnemann, 1952. Gary Cooper as the uh, hero. Uh, the evil villain Frank Miller, which causes tittering amongst uh, comics readers of my age. But Frank Miller is coming to town, and the town cannot be roused to prevent it. And Gary Cooper begins to realize that he is the only barbarian left in the town, and he's got a choice to make. And uh, his moral choices are very clearly laid out by the other characters in the movie, uh, who he talks to in his attempt to try and get anyone, literally, to help him stop uh, Frank Miller. And the climax, which I shan't give away, is just as terrific and heroic as, as you want a climax to be in a Western. It's a gorgeous movie, beautiful black and white, and again iconic it's it's a commentary about a lot of things among them uh the uh, mccarthy era and uh fred zinnemann was one of the uh, anti-mccarthy filmmakers who made this as a as a statement about that but like great uh art it can be applied to any number of moral conflicts before or since and it's just a terrific 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 movie uh on a, on a good old watching level and it's it plays out the the morality of the western in a Absolutely clear, but but never uh, tiresome uh, fashion. And and the Western, because it is so stripped down, it is usually about a very small number of people in a small town or uh, even in a wilderness, that I think makes it a really strong template for all sorts of different thematic approaches. And so yeah. uh, within the pattern that you've laid out, uh, there's all sorts of different takes on uh, either on uh, life and on uh, the the nature of civilization and how uh, needing to civilize a place ruins it for the people who uh, uh, want to remain wild. Um, and uh, in the instance of High Noon, uh, another great director, Howard Hawks, reacted to that. And this is an interesting case of can extolling the liberal film, and I'm about to extol the conservative reaction to it. Uh, Hawks saw that and said, I don't like this. The, the Gary Cooper's going around asking all the uh, townsfolk for help. And the whole point is they don't give them help because they're afraid of uh, the blacklist. Well, uh, in Rio Bravo, uh, it's all about uh, how uh, John Wayne and uh, a his tight-knit uh, group of people uh, tells the town folk to duck for cover. They're going to take care of things when they uh, capture the uh, no-good son of the uh, criminal cattle baron from outside of town, and they keep him in the jail uh, with repeated assaults on uh, the jail. So it's got uh, Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson and uh, Walter Brennan, Walter as, the, Brennan. As, the, as the main sidekicks. And 
Angie Dickinson as the befuddling uh, feathered apple of uh, John Wayne's eye. And the name of the film, by the way, is Rio Bravo for Rio those Bravo. who are following at home. Rio Bravo. Yes. Sorry, I didn't get to that. <laughs> Extemporaneous speech. <laughs> you, you seem to be going fairly deep into the woods there without having um, uh, put a sign on the door. So I just That's thought why I'd do this. Yeah. The, and the thing about Rio Bravo, it is the sort of quintessential hangout movie which is a term that Quentin Tarantino uh, devised to talk about films where they, the characters are just sort of, they're given enough space to exist together. It's about waiting. And usually waiting is something you never want to put in a narrative and, and you can't make riveting. And there's all sorts of elements of this Cinemascope uh, 50, I think it's VistaVision actually, widescreen Technicolor 50s film that are kind of corny. You know, Ricky Nelson, who's a pop star of the day, gets to do a little number. And of course, Dean Martin sings My Rifle, My Pony and Me. And there's all sorts of uh, great Walter Bennett, Brennan uh, byplay. And it's something that the way that it works on you is, is quite mysterious in a way it's sort of a, a great example of just the magic of cinema of how these all these different elements come together to present something that's just eminently watchable and rewatchable and and just uh, plain fun and it builds to a, a big fun sort of actiony climax for for its time and uh it's uh if, if you want something that's just really enjoyable as cinema yet mysteriously classic uh, that's Rio Bravo from 1959 uh I will uh Present another film and its response, then. Uh, the fourth of my four Gospels, or actually second in order, is Shane by George Stevens, in which Alan Ladd must defend townsfolk from the people who used to defend the townsfolk, the guys who previously tamed the land and were the necessary barbarians, but it turns out are no longer that. And uh, Alan Ladd has to uh, face down, I think it's Jack Palance, it's isn't Jack it? Plans, it's Jack Palance. It's Jack Palance. And so uh, this is George Stevens, made it in 1953. It is a utter classic of uh of the western agon and the and the and the sort of moment in history that is the western uh westerns are always about that moment that the frontier is about to go away and the western will stop being relevant again that goes back to the silence um which provides ever more mythic depth to the thing because they're simultaneously super historically located and super mythological it, it's a great illustration of what uh, eliade calls the illid tempest the mythical time shane is about that moment in mythical time where one guy has to face down jack palance and clint eastwood's response to that movie to shane came in 1992 with a movie called unforgiven which i hope i hope to gosh everyone has seen yes that's on my uh that would have been my example of the newer western but yes absolutely right. but again it's it's not it's not new it's once more about a former bad guy a sort of jack palance character who has decided to go straight and can't do it because he's freaking Jack Palance. Only in this case, he's Clint Eastwood. And he has to respond because it is Eastwood to a corruption of civilization as opposed to a specifically barbarian threat to Sheriff Gene Hackman, who is, uh, in many ways, the embodiment of the order, but in other, other ways is very clearly the same barbarism that Eastwood himself represented back in the day, just wearing a different uh, costume and, and unforgiven sort of is the spot at which you move from the original Western toward the revisionist Western. People call it revisionist, but it's not uh, because it still makes the same decisions about civilization and barbarism. If you want a real revisionist Western by Clint Eastwood, look at the outlaw Josie Wales, which is a great movie and is hundred percent on the side of barbarians on the side of outlaws on the side of Josie Wales, who is uh, to add to his other sins, also a Confederate uh, raider and doesn't really seem to have, 
a, a bad feeling about that one way or the other. He's got a, an Indian uh, friend, uh, Chief Dan George, but he does not actually uh, demonstrate any sort of moral recovery. And the sole thing that he brings to the argument is that the forces of civilization are mean to him. And that is a terrific Western, but it is absolutely a revisionist Western in the sense that people like to say, but don't usually get right. You also want to fill in your uh, our syllabus here with at least one Anthony Mann noir Western from the 50s starring James Stewart. Well, you, you certainly Stewart. want to. <laughs> Pardon me? You certainly want to. Yes. Yes. Pick any of them. Uh, <laughs> Winchester 73 is a good example. My favorite is actually The Naked Spur. Uh, from 1953 with uh, James Stewart, uh, Janet Lee, and Robert Ryan with uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, torrid uh, action and, and betrayal in uh, uh, largely set in a cave. It's uh, sort of uh, pulsating with repressed uh, 50s uh, lust. And like all of these movies, gives you a much different Jimmy Stewart than you think you know if you just know It's a Wonderful Life and his daughtering appearances in uh, later talk show uh, and later films that uh, as, as in vertigo, there's something deep and dark and strange in the uh, James Stewart that we see in all of these Anthony Mann uh, Westerns. I would say by and large, watch all the Anthony Mann films. You can just as yeah. a general rule, because he is a crazily underrated director. And so if you're in a party with other film people, you can drop Anthony Mann's name and you won't be boring anyone. And everyone will look at you as if to say, oh, that person is totally cool and interesting. I would like to mate with them or offer them food and beverages. In, in addition to his noir westerns, he also made a number of really interesting noir noirs from noir films. And a noir French Revolution film, in fact. But uh, once again, we digress from our 101-ness. So we uh, do. Uh, give us another essential. Another essential is the other great revisionist western, The Wild Bunch uh, by Sam Peckinpah, which is about a band of outlaws and the end of the West closing down on them and crushing them. It is, uh, I think better thematically than, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, which is sort of in that same space, but Butch and Sundance has got that sort of happy boppy seventies. Hey, everything's copacetic. William Goldman charm. Whereas the wild bunch is, brutal. is just about ugliness. <laughs> and I think that makes it a better, it better co cohabits with the actual, truth of the West and the actual fact of uh, the closing of the West and, and what that meant. And, uh, and I, and I think it also, I think it's a better film just because Peck and Paul, I think is a better director, but you know, Butch and Sundance yeah, is fine. One is cute and diverting. And the other is a, a dark masterpiece is, that, be, is being gut shot. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. th that introduces the uh, slow motion violence uh, to, to cinema. And when you watch it and you, and you realize it was made in 1969, you're amazed because it, it's like super, super foreshadows not just 70s film, but in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of 80s film and a lot of the ways that they uh, try to address uh, violence cinematically. It's just crazily interesting. And um, it's a it's a rare ensemble piece that works. It's not uh, just one guy and a bunch of uh, no names. Uh, speaking of people who came along in the 60s to uh, radically uh, tilt the style, if not the theme of the Western on its ear, you got to go for a Sergio Leone film. And Absolutely. Since, uh, this course only lets us pick uh, one. I'm going to go for the epic mas operatic masterpiece that is Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which has one of the great villain introductions of all time, uh, reinforced by the fact that the villain is played by Henry Fonda, that previous yes. font yes. of all-American uh, decency. I, I and think, I think it, it, a newer generation may not get how 
crazily amazing that was. Yes. Right? It, it would be like if you're watching a movie and Morgan Freeman was the serial killer. That's the kind of effect that it would have, I right. think. And, and he's played bad guys earlier in his career. So even that's not a perfect analogy. Yeah, right. But unlike other stars of his caliber, uh, Fonda had not played a villain. And the villain that he plays here and the thing that he does when he's introduced uh, and the way that he does it, uh, it's just uh, the opening sequence, the long, long, drawn-out, attenuated open sequence of a bunch of classic, grizzled uh, Western uh, character actors. There's uh, Jackie Lamb and uh, Woody Strode just waiting on this uh, enormously overscaled uh, uh, abandoned railway station for somebody to show up. And the, the sound design, Ennio Marconi, the great composer who worked on all of those uh, films, uh works just with sound effects and a soundscape. Even just that opening sequence uh, is uh, amazing. Uh, uh, the music, the way the music works in that, and uh, uh, Charles Bronson uh, is uh, unusually great in, in that film as well. <laughs> um, but you can't go wrong with the earlier stripped-down uh, Leone films uh, either. Uh, uh, for a Fistful of Dollars, uh, the first one has Clint in it, and is a uh, remake of a classic Akira Kurosawa film, Yojimbo. And uh, speaking of uh, remakes of Akira Kurosawa films, does The Magnificent Seven make your list? Absolutely it does. Um, it uh, makes it as the epistle from the virtuous pagan samurai. It is the uh, movie that sort of explains how you take a great movie and make a great Western out of it. And it uh, this, the Seven Samurai is about many things, but it's not really a Western. It uh, obviously <laughs> yeah. Kurosawa is not. informed by the Western. He's watched a ton of Westerns uh, before making uh, Seven Samurai, but it's very much about Bushido and an entirely different moral code than the code of the West. And John Sturges manages to translate the Seven Samurai into a Western, keeping not everything that makes the Seven Samurai great. In fairness, if Seven Samurai is is a all time top five movie classic, Magnificent Seven is an all time top. 25 western classic i would say yeah but i and, think and that don't it's... watch don't watch magnificent seven immediately after seven Samurai, no that, that will, that will ruin it a bit yes but i'll tell you what you can watch magnificent seven over and over and over and over again it never gets old it is the performances are all terrific the many different incarnations of the gunfighter code that Sturges chooses to present as part of the seven. It, it's great the character delightful work. scenery chewing by uh, Eli Wallach as the bad guy. Yes, Eli Wallach is, is Eli Wallach's the hell out of things in in the Magnificent Seven. Uh, everyone is just really bringing it, and the music uh, by Elmer Bernstein is possibly the greatest, uh, certainly the jauntiest, uh, great film theme ever written, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, and you just listen to the, the to that movie play out. It's not a masterpiece of sound design. I, I'm not even sure it's a masterpiece of anything, but it is a movie in which everything works, and it works much better than you would imagine it possibly could have if someone had told you, hey, John Sturgis remade The Seven Samurai only with cowboys. Um, it, it's vastly better than you think. And uh, for an action set piece, it films it better than a lot of action set pieces are being filmed in this year of grace, 2016, because the director bothers to show you the land before he puts a fight in it. And that makes all the difference. It's, it's a super, super great movie. And I totally recommend it. Right. And, uh, I, from what I can tell from the trailer for the coming remake with Denzel Washington and, uh, Ethan Hawke, I think basically you want to 
think of that as a totally different. It seems like they ideally, the, yes, yeah. The, the <laughs> thing that they're carrying over is there's seven guys in hats, mm-hmm. and it's uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua, who has so far yet to shoot an action sequence that is any good at all. Um, and I am told that it's the second unit directors who are at fault with bad action sequences, but Fuqua apparently hires nothing but terrible second unit directors then because he's never done a good one. And when you can waste Chow Yun fat in a movie, you are capable of any, any crime. I feel back from, uh, from that apt digression, another, <laughs> uh, director, uh, star team that you can just pick any one of is Bud Bettisher, Randolph Scott. Absolutely. Yes. And there's a, a great DVD box that collects almost all of them together. Uh, any one of them will, uh, will do. They're all very, they're shot on minimal budgets. Uh, they've all got a great character actor as the villain and a great relationship between Randolph Scott as the hero and the villain and a sort of a theme of vengeance. And they're all pretty stripped down and, and really, uh, you know, just sort of a core stark example of storytelling in each instance. I will go from uh, with uh, seven men from now. That is uh, the one that I would pick also. 1956. Uh, not least because previously, uh, years ago, I had another player in my group who had never seen a Western, never seen so much as an episode of The Lone Ranger. And uh, fortunately, the Siskel Center here in Chicago was running that Bud Bedecker series. And so I said, we're going to drag you off by your ear. And we sat down on the first Western he ever saw was Seven Men From Now. And I'm glad to tell you that he is now a productive member of society and, and worthy of his vote. <laughs> that's, a, that's a heartwarming story. The, the, final, the final of my ten is the other... Sergio Leone, uh, sprawling masterpiece, uh, of the West, which is the last in the Eastwood, uh, Man with No Name series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And it also has Eli Wallach chewing the, the scenery. Uh, you're gonna shoot, shoot. You're gonna shoot, shoot. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is, uh, what I consider the, the apocalypse, right? All great testaments need to close down with an apocalypse. Uh, there are other great apocalypses in film. Hang em High is, is perhaps a classic. Uh, but I would say the good and bad and the ugly has operatic scope, um, operatic characters, uh, a beautiful bunch of set pieces, a story that works amazingly well when you realize how little that must have been a priority for anyone. But uh, everything sort of clicks together and, and moves along, and you're never going to see anyone who you'd rather see shoot uh, bad guys than Clint Eastwood. And he does so little of it in this movie that when he does it, you really know that um, uh, something special has happened. And that way, it's very similar to Unforgiven, where he takes an awful long time uh, to start shooting people. It's very much as if you put Barishnikov in a movie and he only dances in the last bit. Uh, Eastwood in Good, Bad, and the Ugly is uh, the waiting game played by the director, the star, and the audience to... Um, one of the great showdowns ever filmed. I think the three, the three man standoff at the graveyard in the good, the bad, the ugly, you, you know, that's the desert island 10 minute movie sequence, much less, you know, the desert island film, I would say. Yeah. If, there, if there's anyone who's a master of attenuated pacing of a, a, a withholding, it's uh, Sergio Leone. Um, and uh, the last thing I will mention is uh, kind of out of step with everything else. But if you're going to talk about the Western, I think you need at least one example of a comedy Western. Uh, there's a big tradition of those. And the mm-hmm. one that I would uh, point you to is Destry Rides Again. Another great one. Yes. Uh, from 1939, directed by George Marshall again uh, with uh, James Stewart uh, as a, uh, a befuddled uh, Boy Scoutish cowboy who... Uh, falls uh, into the radar of dance hall chanteuse uh, Marlena Dietrich. Yes. And uh, that's just a, a 
And if we have not sold you on that movie, then you cannot be sold. Congratulations. You're unsellable. That's all you need to know. Yeah. If if that, if that doesn't melt your heart, uh, we can do nothing for you. And I believe that, isn't that, uh, is that another John Ford or was that not John Ford? Uh, George Marshall. George Marshall. Okay. Right. So, uh, yes, there you go. That is, uh, my 10 plus a smattering of, uh, deuterocanonical, uh, books for your delectation and amusement. And I believe that we could do another 10, 20, 50 Westerns because it is the greatest, the greatest of all film genres. But sadly, uh, the cinema hut has to close down so they can, uh, clean up between the aisles and we'll return another time. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The clacking of Chronoton and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And Time Incorporated, uh, very cooperatively, is helping out uh, with our Patreon by allowing our Patreon backers to send Ken back into time. And so this time, Patreon backer Chris McNeil uh, gives you, uh, I say, pretty wide latitude. Uh, he wants you to pick any medieval peasant revolution and make it successful. Can were there medieval peasant revolutions that you had to rule out as uh, inherently doomed before you select whatever one you selected? Um, I had to uh, rule out, sadly, the greatest of all medieval peasant revolutions, uh, the Jacquerie in France, where the uh, French peasants decided that everyone trying to become French king over a, uh, what turned out to be about a 250 year long civil war was an idiot and rose up against them. But sadly, um, uh, you can't really maintain a peasant, a peasant commune or a peasant or a peasant republic in the middle of a eminently fortified land full of angry knights, uh, because knights will pretty much stomp peasants if they fight in the green rolling hills of France. The same problem happened with the, uh, 1381 Peasants Revolt, uh, Watt Tyler's Rebellion in England. It's the other great uh, rebellion. All, all of the communist historians in England in the 40s and 50s loved it to death, and so it's super well known. But again, it covered maybe the southern bit of, uh, of England, and there's lots of nobles up there in Yorkshire, uh, uh with their, um, uh, with their horses and their armor just champing at the chance to ride down and, uh, take over the south of England themselves. So It's like the ruling class thought about how they would continue themselves as the ruling class. It's almost as though the ruling class was very, very aware that the peasants did not like them and took uh, lengthy and continuous steps to prevent that. So which peasant revolution did you settle upon? Well, so you have to pick a peasant's revolution that 
is got at least potentially defensible boundaries and you have to pick a peasant's revolution in which the knights themselves have to operate at closer to the edges of their ability to project power. And once you start looking at that, the peasant revolution that falls into your view is the St. George's Night Uprising in Estonia, in which the peasants of Estonia rebelled against the hated Teutonic Order. And on St. George's Night in 1343, they set a big house on the hill on fire. One assumes it was so that's night was, with no K. That's night with no K. Uh, it was, um, uh, one, one assumes it was full of, of hated Germans. And that was the signal for everyone in Estonia to rise up and stab all the Germans and get them out. The Germans were the foot soldiers of the Livonian order, which had conquered Estonia in the latter part of the, of the 13th century and had been running it, uh, very badly, uh, overtaxing them and uh, stomping out their uh, lovely uh, peasant beliefs, many of which were uh, marginally or not at all Christian, but certainly um, uh, their belief that they got to keep their weapons and food was one that they were very interested in stamping out. (laughs) And the great thing about Estonia is, since it's way up on the edge of everywhere, um, it's not like there's going to be anyone coming in from the north. They're foreign occupiers, so their supply lines are thin. The east is covered is, is covered by the Russians, who are not going to let anyone into Estonia, this being an entirely different batch of Russians uh, than the current batch. Um, and the uh, Estonia itself is full of bogs and fens, which are great countryside for luring knights into to drown, as indeed Alexander Nevsky did against a previous batch of Teutonic knights at um, uh, the Battle of Lake Pipus. So the uh, Estonians rebel and they send their four uh, kings to talk uh, peace terms with the Livonian Knights. And they basically, their argument was, we'll stay your vassals, we'll pay a fair tax, you just can't live in Estonia. We'll just govern ourselves, we'll pay you the taxes, uh, let you use the port, and that's cool, but we'll just keep Estonia. And the Knights were like, no, we'd rather keep Estonia. And they murdered the four kings in the castle against all medieval codes of chivalry and knightly conduct, because, again, they're horrible, horrible people. They're the Teutonic Knights. Um, and so the uh, Estonians took that badly, and uh, but without their kings, they were forced into a series of uncoordinated rebellions. They were not able to get as close to the bogs as they would like. The knights had been able to bring up reinforcements and basically rode them down over the next three years, and the Estonians all died. Until a man with a time machine comes along. Until a man with a time machine comes along. And the, and the crucial moment in the Estonian Revolution, in the uh, uh, St. George's Night uh, Revolt, is indeed that meeting in the castle at Weichensteine, or Pada, depending on where you are linguistically. And so the Estonians uh, have... Uh, their four kings and their entourage and the knights have brought uh, maybe 400. Uh, you, it, it's hard to know exactly, but it's a bunch of knights, including the grandmaster of the, of the Livonian order, Burkhard von Dreileben. Um, uh, and so a, a lot of, of Teutonic knights have gathered in this castle. A suspiciously large number of Teutonic knights. Exactly, for a peace meeting. And indeed, if the Estonian kings had had a little bit of time travel advice, they might have known it was a suspiciously large number. And so, if you know that these guys are going to betray you, it should not be beyond the capacity of Estonian peasants, especially if someone can go back 50 or 100 years and start staffing the castle with people who know that on a given uh, day, they were to rise up and stab everyone in it and maybe open the doors for a bunch of Estonian uh, soldiery uh, to reverse the trap. And instead of wiping out the four kings and the leadership of Estonia, when they are gathering together for the, the meet, 
You send either the four kings or four guys who look like the four kings and lure them into uh, a position of vulnerability and either, uh, you know, besiege the castle, which is, I guess, ideal, or um, have the, uh, the the peasantry inside open the doors, go in and slaughter everyone while they sleep, which is, of course, the MO of the Estonian rebels in the first place. But it should not be impossible for a guy with a time machine to take down one medieval castle. Uh, Thermite, at the very least, will do a lot more uh, damage to stone walls than you might think. So I think that if we can take out the castle of Weissenstein with the Livonian Order's Grandmaster, with um, uh, four or five of his major uh, sort of regional heads, so the guys who know the Estonian countryside and can say, oh, that's a bog, don't ride into it, and a bunch of other murder knights, the Estonian rebels have a chance because suddenly their desperate uh, letter to the Russians of Pskov to come help them against the Teutonic Knights can get there in time. And the Russians show up and, and the Teutonic Knights barely beat those Russians back even in the, in our history. So if they show up earlier while the re- rebellion is still, um, uh, uh cooking, uh, uh in, with gas, then they can dirt, certainly turn back the Knights moving all the way across Livonia because the Knights don't come from Livonia. They come from Prussia. So that's a long trip at medieval uh, supply levels. It should be possible to maintain a self-sustaining Estonian. And since they have Kings, I don't think it's a Republic, but a, a peasant kingdom, if you will, or at least an Estonian kingdom, uh, in Estonia under the generalized protection, maybe of the Danish crown or under the Russian state of Pskov, which is after all right there. And at this point should probably remember, Oh, right. We had to fight the Teutonic Knights in 1260 and, uh, we didn't much like them then. And we certainly don't like them now. So the, the notion of, uh, maintaining an Estonian, uh, peasant kingdom in between Denmark and Russia and, uh, and thwarting the Livonian Knights, the, the Teutonic order, uh, strikes me as, as a worthy uh, task in many ways, not least because much of the most anti-Semitic and horrible parts of Nazism turn out to come from the German settlers in the Baltics. Alfred Rosenberg is a German Balt. Ungarn von Sternberg is a German Balt. Lots of really terrible people turn out to be German Balts. It's something about, uh, I don't know, maybe living amongst an enormous sea of people who hate you that turns you into a paranoid uh, uh, jerk. And so if we can cut back the Teutonic Knights uh, penetration of the Baltic, I think we do a lot of good going down uh, the centuries as well. Now, due to my preternatural ability to hear people react to the show while they're listening to it, it's a gift. I think some people at this point are saying, how can this be a peasant rebellion when the way that you're uh, saving it is saving a bunch of kings? How do you make sure that the peasant kingdom you're positing is good for the peasants? Well, I mean, part of it is that I've still got a time machine and the kings, you know, in theory, know that uh, this uh, th- this attractive yet doughy guy who had um, uh, taught them the magic of vodka and taught them the equally powerful magic of thermite might show up if they're jerks to their peasants. But also kingdom in in the in the Baltics is in the same sort of an attempt to put a Western construction on a non-Western culture that when people would come to America and they would say, oh, Powhatan, he runs all these Indians. He must be a king of Indians. And Powhatan is a paramount chief and a lot of other things, but he's not a king as European, uh, Western Europeans understood it. Similarly, the Estonian kings are much more like clan leaders or people who are... Um, so they're chieftains. Chieftains or, or warband heads, not uh, sort of, uh, you know, um, royal jerks who sit in a palace and uh, extort everybody. Now, I'm not saying that they're not jerks, and certainly 
all power is corrupting. Right. But, but they're if you're, played by Brian Blessed. Uh, they're, not they're, Tom exactly. They're, they're lovely people. And at the very least, they're the lovely people who live there as opposed to a bunch of German jerks from far away, which is the real difference. Um, if the Estonians wind up voting a bunch of jerks in to be their king, well, I can't really stop that any more than I can stop a bunch of people voting jerks in to be their king. Oh, I don't know. Closer to home, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> he says foreshadowing next week's episode. <laughs> um, so are there any cool uh, details that we can uh, pluck from this, from our, uh, our gaming? How would we make a, uh, I guess the scenario here would be you find out that the 400 knights are on the way to kill the four chieftains and you're the heroes who have to get in their way. And because uh, the Estonians, there is an argument and it's probably legitimate. It's hard to say because a lot of this historiography was done during the most anti-clerical era in, in, in European history, and the rest of it was done by communists. But there is an argument that the Estonians, in many uh, instances, were still pagan, and that part of what the Livonian Order was doing was exterminating paganism and spreading Christianity. Now, the Livonian Order certainly said they were doing that, but the Livonian Order may have just said, instead of pagan, it's guys who have a lot of grain we want. So, <laughs> hard to say. Suspiciously prosperous pagans. For role-playing purposes. We're going to teach them the Christian value of poverty. Exactly. We will enforce a vow of poverty on them if it kills them. Maybe show them what stigmata looks like. That's right. Um, the, the sacred wounds. Get ready. But you certainly, for role-playing purposes, you can have uh, Estonian uh, witches and uh, pagan sorcerers who are there using the whistling magic. Estonians are... Uh, very close to Finns uh, culturally, and so you you can uh, borrow all that stuff from uh, the 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 Kalevala, all your Vanamoinens and magical um, uh, cantellas and whatnot, and use uh, musical creepy uh, mist magic uh, as part of your weapons against the hated Teutonic Knights. And I think that if you've got sort of a um, sort of a, a Star Wars concept where you've got these sort of stormtroopers that ride around and there's a great big fortress and they're led by guys in horrible black armor and uh, they've got some sort of horrible magic, the the Teutonic Knights with their Grail Templar powers um, uh, versus your uh, the force that arises from the swamps here in, uh, it's not Dagobah so much, it's more Estonia, but still the same theory. And, Ewok uh, isn't an, an Estonian word, is it? No, Ewok is, it's not, these aren't Ewoks, these are Wookiees, man, these are boss. <laughs> These are Heinzos. They're much better <laughs> yes. than Ewoks. I, I think you can have uh, a, a, some kind of some fun with uh, with going into Estonian folklore, and maybe Estonia does have uh, uh, woad woes and, and and swamp dudes that, that live there and, and come out and, and thrash people with giant bowcasters. I mean clubs, and it could it could be great fun that way. I think that's a terrific possibility. Plus, who doesn't love stomping evil Germans? I mean, that's the core of half of role playing. Let's move it back into the medieval times. Yeah, and so you you just have the beginning where you have to go around and negotiate with all the uh, swamp entities to get them on your side mm -hmm. and uh, raise your army for the uh, coming of the uh, uh, Teutonic Knights. And then you and then the uh, sort of the, the the flavor comes that you have to make sure that your Russian allies don't stick around, and you have to make sure that the guys in your army who are really just in it for the massacring of women and children uh, don't wind up running things afterwards, and maybe wind up in the swamp. Uh, themselves. Well, I think if you've not only made a medieval peasant revolution succeed and put Wookiees in it, that we can uh, declare our job well done for yet another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourselves among such Estonian chieftains as... Todd McGowan. Tony Kemp. 
Trung Bui, Alexander Zimmerman, and Andrew Jones. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.